Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 12th, 2021, the Little Fires Everywhere edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., a sweltering. We're setting a record today, Washington, D.C. Uh, and That sounds horrible. It's horrible. Uh, I haven't been outside yet, so I don't know how horrible it is. I am joined by... Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily, from her home in New Haven, I think. Hey, David. Yeah. And also by Josie Duffy Rice, a writer in Atlanta. And now Josie has a new job. Josie, you're the interim co-host of the Daily News podcast, What a Day. What is What a Day? And welcome. I'm really excited. It is basically a 20-minute breakdown of the news every morning, what you need to know and what you can do about what you need to know. And so I'm really excited. I'm joining Monday, August 16th, uh, two days a week, and um, alongside Gideon Resnick and Priyanka Arabindi and Travel Anderson. And that starts on Monday. So yes, I am no longer unemployed. I'm still sort of unemployed. <laughs> Congratulations. What Thank a day. You. What a day that will be. And John Dickerson is is uh, just on vacation, I guess. I don't know we where don't John know where is, he is. probably he's on vacation. Maybe we'll let him come back. This week... The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, issued its sixth report on the state of climate change. The IPCC report presents a dire, dire, dire prospect for humanity. How do we avoid despair and fend off the worst of climate change? Or maybe we don't, and we just have despair. Then a new book explores the enormous impact that Ralph Nader and other citizen activists have had on American life and reaches a very surprising conclusion about them. We'll be joined by its author, Paul Sabin, a.k.a. Mr. Emily Bazelon. That's going to be great. Then this week in COVID lunacy, what should be done about kids and schools as the pandemic threatens to disrupt yet a third school year? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. The IPCC issued its sixth report on the state of climate change this week, and even Stephen King couldn't possibly have written a scarier 4,000-page book. It draws on the work of hundreds of scientists, and and just, this generally is a pretty conservative study, as we'll discuss. And this IPCC report concludes that we're well on our way to 1.5 degrees Celsius of temperature rise, that extreme weather events, especially involving fire and flooding, are becoming alarmingly prevalent and likely and will only increase that bad sea level rise is basically certain and catastrophic sea level rise is pretty likely as well and that we don't have very much time to do anything about any of this so we've invited actually paul sabin who we mentioned earlier to join us for this first topic because paul is a professor of environmental history at yale in addition to being a book author in addition to being emily baslon's uh, slightly better half so paul welcome <laughs> thanks so welcome. much for uh, having me on i thought we were talking about my garden tomatoes we have uh, a lot of tomatoes. Tomatoes. We can talk about tomatoes. So, Emily, let's start. We, we have whistled past the issue of climate catastrophe repeatedly on this show. We, we have. We whistled we, past we it. We whistle past it. We just don't talk about it nearly as much. I mean, I think that we'd agree. It's the issue of our age. It's the crisis of our age. It's much bigger than anything else that we're facing, really. And it's so terrible and big to think about. And we all... all Four of us here have children who are going to have to live with the worst of this even more than we will. So given this IPCC report, how do you balance despair and paralysis and hope and action? We'll get to the substance of the report in a minute, but just like I want to start with that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think that looking at the realities in this report 
can be can one can feel fatalistic because there is some temperature rise that at this point is baked in literally however the degree of the temperature rise the extent of it matters enormously and that is a chapter that we haven't written yet and that we have a lot of control over and so i look at this report and i think that we still have a chance to make sure that the world as we know it continues and that it's incredibly important for us to feel the urgency in the choices we make now and how they're going to affect the kind of changes we can make to ensure that we don't have these, you know, temperature increases above two degrees, which just seem like they really would be catastrophic. Um, But I think it's hard because when you know that something bad is going to happen, And what you can prevent is something really much worse. You still have to kind of reckon with the bad part. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's really hard to get one's brain to focus on this topic. And and then, of course, there's the long-term incremental nature of it, which has made it so hard for governments to address and to have international true cooperation. Paul, you've just written a book about public mistrust in government and how public mistrust in government developed, which we'll talk about in a minute. We have with the climate catastrophe, a collective action problem of the highest level. They're really hard to solve, but they're even more hard to solve in a divided nation and divided world. So given that, it's very easy to see how we don't solve it. It's very easy to see how we continue. What are the steps we start to take to start to do a little bit. Uh, I mean, my own view is that we need to start by uh, thinking about climate change not as a scientific problem, but as a social one uh, and a political one. So I, I, I mean, I think that the information that came out in the IPCC report is devastating and frightening. Um, but the thing that is uh, maybe more interesting to me is to think about what new information, you know, is it going to take to prod, uh, you know, the Republican Party or the judiciary to take action on uh, climate change? You know, so, so it really raises the question of how how do these descriptions of natural phenomena, you know, translate, you know, fires and floods and heat waves, how does that translate into into politics? And so I I think that that is actually the area that we need to focus on uh, maybe more. Uh, uh, And that's an area for hope, uh, building on, you know, what Emily was saying, because that's within our control. But it also is uh, immensely uh, challenging uh, to try to figure out, uh, you know, how to turn these issues. I think that there's a lot of support for action. Uh, Polling suggests that. Um, but you know our system domestically is uh, is still very dominated by uh, you know certain uh, political interests and also uh, you know a- energy interests and others that are you know leave this very entrenched. So Josie, I've actually been surprised at how little pushback we've heard from climate change skeptics from the oil and gas industry to the IPCC report. It's it feels like the level of visible and smellable and touchable catastrophe is so high right now, maybe because the fires are raging so vigorously everywhere in the world, including where you are, that denialism is is harder than it's ever been. But the absence of pushback doesn't mean the presence of change or the presence of positive action. Is there anything you see in the political system that gives you hope that people can be turned towards action, not just not denying it anymore? Well, my understanding of, I don't know about the political system, but the economic system, and Paul, you might 
know, you'll, you definitely will know a lot more about this than I do, but is that a lot of big corporations and businesses are starting to think about how to invest and practice better environmental policy and, and better environmental practice because they recognize that their future is tied into climate change, right? I mean, if we are seeing the advent of a catastrophic event for the entire human population, that's not good for corporations either. And so I think in some ways, businesses, at least some big businesses have stopped with this sort of ignoring the um, impending climate change and trying to understand how to change it. But I also, I mean, maybe it's good we're not seeing a lot of a pushback to the ICC report. But on the other hand, like in the middle of the pandemic, it really does demonstrate how hard collective action is and how difficult it is to have people believe something when they just don't want to believe it. Um, and so I, I'm not super hopeful about that, actually. I think the lack of skepticism is step one of, of a hundred steps we need to take to get to where we need to be. Yeah, I mean, I see some of the most promising changes in the market, just to pick up on what Josie's saying. So the insurance industry, like there's reality here about some of the properties that are going to be astronomically expensive to continue to insure. And that is going to force property owners in certain parts of the country and the world to change their behavior, change how they think about where they build. And then there's also the military planning and law enforcement and cities, like the the sort of realities um, of the people who are actually responsible for making sure that the infrastructure stays up, if it possibly can. I wonder, though... But Emily, just sorry, just to... Put, I mean, yes, I think that's true. And certainly the military insurance companies are good examples. But have you looked at the, the housing market in Miami recently or in South Florida? Is it hot? It's super hot. I mean, not yeah. in every sense of the word. It is super hot. I guess that, that goes back to kind of what I was saying about how the disasters, you know, actually translate into policy and the, whether they actually lead to uh, the kinds of changes uh, that one wants. Because you can also imagine, uh, you know, we'll have heat waves, so then there'll be more air conditioning. We'll have uh, we'll have some sea level rise. It won't work in Miami because the water comes from below. But in some places, you know, then we'll build seawalls. Uh, uh, so you can imagine like a- adaptive strategies that provide a lot of corporate opportunity, but don't um, uh, actually solve the problem. Uh, I mean, I think that a lot there's a, one of the big areas of hope is a market uh, one, which is just that solar and wind power, the prices have been plummeting. Uh, and so competitively, there's a tremendous opportunity to shift away. And I, and I think what Josie said about the pandemic is both cause for concern because government response to the pandemic has been challenging. Um, but for me, it's also inspiring. I mean, we just spent uh, trillions of dollars uh, in over a couple of years uh, in responding to the pandemic. And we, we can't we muster, you know, trillions of dollars to uh, solve the fate of the planet? You know, I mean, if we spend trillions of dollars on on shifting the energy system, uh, we could accomplish a tremendous amount. Yeah, a thing that one of my friends who um, is an also an envi- environmental law professor says is that policy got us in this position. And the thing that gives our hope is that policy can also get us out that making, you know, making better decisions is possible. Um, the question is just whether or not we'll actually do I don't it. think policy got us into this decision. I think what got us into this decision is that energy drives the world and that the best sources of energy turned out well, maybe to Maybe a lack of policy got us in this position. I mean, in other words, like we could have been regulating. Well, and subsidies for oil and gas. I mean, the whole way that we structured the economy. To, I mean, you're right, David, but also like there's always policy decisions underlying um, how markets develop. Sure, right? sure. But but 
mostly what happened is that I mean, Paul, you're the historian of this, so I'm I'm sure I'm going to butcher this. Is that in starting in the late 19th century or mid 19th century, we discovered these forms of of energy uh, that were incredibly productive and stored much more energy in them than anything we'd ever seen before and were pretty easy to mine or to to drill for and like that allowed us to to you know to have the incredible prosperity and wealth that that many of us have been luxurious enough to to I mean, I, mean I, think, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and it, go, it goes back to my back to my first book uh, on the oil in California was really about the role of the government in the marketplace, and, and I think it's undeniable that coal and oil, per, you know, pr- provided energy in a new in new ways that was incredibly uh, productive for society. Um, but government, you know, played a huge role. Uh, you think about uh, the way various ways in which it sort of structured the whole energy marketplace, the building up of the highways, the uh, giving away of the oil lands for a relatively low amount of money. Uh, the allowing of, uh, you know, coal and oil to uh, just pollute the air. I mean, go back and look at those photos of Pittsburgh and, and think about what government was was doing, you know, to permit uh, just the pollution of the of, of the entire country, you know, uh, and the and the terrible air quality. So, I mean, there were a tremendous number of, uh, of government decisions. And I think that the challenge uh, now is figuring out how do you now that that's all baked into the landscape, we live sprawled out over the country, we're all dependent on our automobiles, we are accustomed to flying in various, various ways. How do you then re- Structure that economy after uh, you know 150 years of investment. Uh, incredibly difficult. How much, Josie, do you think we owe it to our children to focus on our personal behavior? I mean, in my case, it's shocking. I've taken like four plane flights this summer, uh, which I'm sure is just devastating. Or how much is it? Is our responsibility to focus on personal behavior, or is our responsibility to focus on like let's? push on the policy changes that will really make a distant difference on the global scale. You can't say both. You can't say we have to do both. Oh, I have to say both. Well, this is what I, you know, when, when there's all the talk about straws, remember, and then people were saying these paper straws and then the backlash was using a straw is not what's causing climate change, right? It is these big businesses that are practicing bad policy that are creating this problem. And I think that's true. The idea that we could all stop using straws and, you know, make a huge dent in, in, um, climate change is wrong, but it is very important for people to understand that to make important changes, um, globally, you have to make important changes personally, right? Like you do have to understand the importance of personal sacrifice or we're never going to get to what, um, to where we need to be until we're sort of forced to sacrifice everything because, you know, like we were talking about, you, you know, the, the coast road and every, you know, the, the, everybody's life changes, um, on a daily level. So I, so I really do think that obviously the answer here is that on an individual level, we can't have the impact that, um, that changing policy on a broader level can. But I, I do think just as a kind of moral and social, um, imperative, we have to focus on individual behavior as well. Yeah, I also think it's a useful reminder of like our common uh, our common ground here. Uh, I have a different question though that I want to ask Paul. So you were talking about how difficult it is to change all this landscape and all the structure of our petroleum wor- built world. The Senate just passed an infrastructure bill with a trillion dollars, um, and 
some of it is designed to address these issues. Can you kind of grade the bill? How do you divide it into pieces? How effective do you think it is as a kind of initial investment in the kinds of changes you're talking about? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm positive on the bill, uh, particularly if it's paired with the reconciliation uh, bill that would come afterwards, which includes a lot more. But it, it does show just how difficult it's going to be uh, to address the climate problem through public investment, because you know, what, I think the largest single item in the bill is roads and bridges. And then there's money for, you know, for transit and, uh, and rail, but that's mostly shoring up the stuff that we have with some expansion. Um, it's a real, quite modest uh, $7.5 billion maybe. I can't remember exactly for electric charging stations, which is never going to be enough to switch people over to electric vehicles. And so if you think, go, go, looking back at the trillions of dollars that were spent on, on highways in the country and think about like, what would it take to move us away from this highway-oriented lifestyle to uh, maybe a significantly more uh, um, the, you know, use of mass transit and biking and walking and other types of mobility? Um, you have to think about something that's commensurate with what's been spent in the past, and 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 what this bill is is still actually highways and roads getting the lion's share of it, and uh, and and the alternatives getting more than they've ever gotten in the past, but not enough to shift the balance. So. I mean, I see this as an opening, uh, an opening bit, a positive forward step for government doing something uh, and taking some action and, sh- and maybe shifting the balance slightly. Um, but um, you know, so much more will will have to be done in the future to actually you know really change things. You will not hear Josie in this book segment coming up. That's because she had a power outage, a climate change fueled power outage, and wasn't able to join us. But she'll be back for the segment after this. And now we're going to talk about Paul's new book. Paul Sabin, who, as we said, is a Yale professor of history, uh, has written an amazing and really interesting new book, Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. And it's really interesting for a lot of reasons, but notably, as we will discuss, because it gives us a whole new way to think about what Ralph Nader and Ralph Nader's cohort meant for American life for Americans' relationship with government and for the conservative movement that has attacked government in the years since Nader came on the scene. So, Paul, start by telling us who is Ralph Nader and who are the cohort around him and what did they do to change Americans' relationship with government? Uh, sure. Well, thanks. Thanks for uh, having me on to talk about the book. The book really takes up Ralph Nader's early life. Uh, Nader came into the public prominence in the 1960s, and I situate him as one of a group of public intellectuals in the early 1960s who were coming from the left as liberals uh, or leftists attacking the government and criticizing the government. And it was really a new phase uh, in the post-war period in which uh, people like Jane Jacobs and Rachel Carson and also Nader started to articulate a critique of federal agencies. And so part of what I'm trying to do is to explain what happened to the New Deal period after the New Deal and what role liberals played in bringing that period to an end. And I think that what's interesting about people like Nader and Carson and Jacobs is the way they started to reframe the federal government and see the government as a source of problems as opposed to a source of solutions to society's needs. And actually, just to dig in on that a little bit before we get to the meat of your argument, what is it that Nader in particular did to actually change what government did? What was his strategy and what, in fact, came out of it? 
Yeah, yeah, of course. So Nader came onto the scene in the mid-1960s with the book on auto safety, and he was uh, pivotal in getting past some highway and auto safety bills in the mid-60s. And he was distinctive in that that then launched him into a career as a, I guess what I would call a social entrepreneur. It led to the creation of multiple nonprofit advocacy groups and also the passage of a whole slew of different kinds of environmental and consumer protection laws. And so Nader was a, a very interesting transitional figure in the sense that he started as a public intellectual like Rachel Carson or Jane Jacobs, uh, but then he became an organizational entrepreneur of the 70s. And if you go back to the early 1970s, that's when many of the new environmental organizations were started and also all sorts of different kinds of rights-based organizations, women's rights, civil rights, uh, all sorts of different kinds of advocacy organizations outside of government were started to kind of watch over the government and litigate against it, to critique it. Uh, And so Nader uh, was a progenitor of that whole movement and he helped lead it through the 1970s. And then in many ways, it sort of went beyond him and became something that's really institutionalized in American society today. And so the basic critique, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that these federal agencies could be captured by industry. And so they were no longer really sticking up for American citizens. They were supposed to be the watchdogs for consumers and people in labor. And instead, they needed watchdogs over them. And a lot of the strategy they're using is litigation. They're going into court and they're suing, and they're also trying to get people riled up and mad in a variety of ways. And this is the 1960s. So how does all of this intersect with the civil rights movement and with the protests about the war in Vietnam? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, well, first, I just point out the interesting flip that you just described there from uh, kind of how liberals thought about agencies and courts in the 1930s and then how they came to think about them in the 1960s. And that's one of the interesting reversals, which is that in the 1930s, liberals thought of agencies as independent experts that could wisely set the agenda for the nation and that courts were the conservative obstacle to federal initiative of the New Deal. But by the 1960s, it sort of had flipped. The agencies were often seen as a problem, either because they were captured by industry, as you say, or they had their own terrible ideas uh, that they were pursuing, and they needed to be uh, reined in by citizen activists uh, who were then working through the courts. And so it's a reversal. And I think that has a very uh, important intersection with the civil rights movement, which also uh, turns to the courts during this period. And many of the kind of liberal activists going beyond civil rights uh, in the 1960s looked to groups like the NAACP's legal arm for inspiration. Groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund were modeled on the civil rights uh, movement, and they were inspired to be suing the government and trying to force the government to do what it saw as the right thing. And the Vietnam War also was a pivotal factor there in that the misrepresentations, the lies, the uh, deceptions, uh, and the sense that the government was doing the exact opposite of what it should be doing, doing terrible things, inspired a whole movement of people who didn't trust the government. And, and they saw that their role was to set the government on the right path and to try to assert the true public interest. So argument in the book that is getting the most attention and rightly so because it's so interesting when you start to think about it is that nader and his allies are even though they're trying to build a stronger better government they're trying to build a better government they end up creating distrust in government because they're exposing all the failures of government and that this distrust of government then becomes and I'm interested in how you would characterize it, It becomes allied with, it becomes connected to the conservative project that grows up around Goldwater and then through Reagan to 
make government the enemy of American citizens. And that counterintuitively, this liberalism that Nader represents or that people, you know, you would argue that he was from the left, this leftism ends up helping serve the project of weakening government that conservatives take on in the 70s and 80s. Exactly. I'm really trying to hone in on two different aspects of this. One is the issue of trust, uh, and then the other is the, sort of the coalition that was maintaining the active government coming out of the post-war period. And Nader and others you know, really set their sights on that coalition, you know, a big business, big government, big labor, seeing that as a problematic uh, constellation of uh, power that was allied together and was uh, pursuing things that were actively uh, dangerous to the American people. Uh, and they had, uh, you know, plenty of examples. You could think about the uh, testing of nuclear weapons. Uh, you could think about Rachel Carson and pesticides and uh, DDT spraying that across the land. And you could uh, think about the building of highways through cities and the impact on communities. There are a lot of different ways in which this growth coalition, essentially, of the, uh, the post war period was wielding uh, science and technology technology and uh, government power in a way that was dangerous to communities and the environment. And, and they were sort of rising up against that. And they also were part of a critique of the uh, sort of corruption of that period. Uh, and so it's interesting, we go, when, when people think about deregulation, they often uh, go back and they attribute it to the Reagan years. But the impulse to deregulation really started earlier. Uh, and it was uh, in, the, in, the, in the 1970s. And, and a lot of it happened under Carter. And the liberals were very active uh, in it. And, and, and what it what that deregulation was, was a denunciation of the bargain, the partnership between government and business, uh, and, and the idea that the regulation was essentially serving the interests of industry. And the industries had captured the agencies that were regulating them, and there were cartels, essentially, uh, in communications, in trucking, in uh, energy uh, that needed to be broken up. And so uh, liberals like, like Nader, even people like Ted Kennedy, denounced this, this regulatory structure uh, and called for something new. And they're kind of attacking the, very, the New Deal coalition, essentially. Uh, it helped clear the way. And just to, one more further point is just that the uh, you know the Reaganites came in with a simple answer: uh, government's the problem, the market's the solution. And I think that part of what I'm saying uh, is that liberals have struggled with coming up with their own answer because what they have is a new, more nuanced one, which is that government's a problem, the market's not uh, the answer by itself. Uh, we need government, uh, you know, but we also uh, we need government to be better. Uh, and so they came up with this thing where we need like both citizen activists and government, uh, you know, need to work together. You know, it's a complicated story. It's a part of what I'm trying to highlight is uh, the challenges of telling that story, uh, which I think have really um, hampered liberal efforts, uh, you know, over the last generation. One of the things you say in the book is that liberals treated government like a bicycle that they took apart, but then they didn't necessarily figure out how to properly put it back together. And, you know, now we live with the legacy of Reagan and conservative, you know, super entrenched opposition to big government and in a lot of ways to thinking of the government as the solution to problems. And we're in this moment where the Biden administration is trying to spend gobs and gobs of money to prove them wrong. And so I wonder what you think the lessons are from history here in our moment um, as you assess what these bills are doing and how the political debate around them is taking shape. 
Well, I mean, I, I think that's w- why the better is so important in the Build Back Better uh, framing of the infrastructure and investment. Um, because uh, when you go back and look at the history of infrastructure in the U.S., there's a lot of uh, uh, bad infrastructure that got built and destructive uh, policies that were pursued. I think it's really urgent that liberals in trying to develop a, a new deal that they're reframing as a green new deal. That's partly because the original new deal, we're not just trying to resurrect the new deal. We want something different. And I think it's really important to be framing it in that way is that there's a need for government to act, an urgent need, particularly with the climate report coming out this week. But at the same time, government needs to be, you know, watched over, continuously improved uh, upon. Uh, and, and one way to build trust is to, uh, to show a government that's working effectively uh, and that there's a commitment to efficiency, effectiveness, to uh, uh, serving the people and uh, monitoring of government's activities. I, I think what happens with this idea of the taking the government apart uh, in in the 1970s is is that liberals um you know, figured out a way to, uh, you know, break up some of the power structures, but I think they've struggled to, uh, figure out how to re- reassemble them into an effective, uh, governing, uh, approach. Many examples. One might be, uh, the return of earmarks, uh, right now in Congress is an interesting example. Those were, um, eliminated in the, you know, kind of coming out of the spirit of the 1970s, uh, that they were a, a form of corruption, uh, that it was, uh, uh, Congress, you know, self, self-dealing, co- Collaboration with local, you know, economic constituencies, and they needed to be eliminated to kind of purify the Congress. Uh, and then, interestingly, uh, that people argue uh, that that helped the uh, Congress sort of grind to a halt because it couldn't do the kinds of compromises and uh, and bargaining and uh, uh, that are necessary to pass legislation. Uh, and, and so that's just an interesting, uh, you know, one one example. You can have a lot a lot of those uh, of how um, the push for transparency and accountability and all that has uh, uh, also made it more difficult to accomplish things. You are singing David's song. Maybe we could just call the Gab Fest, like, bring earmark. back earmarks bring back forever. <laughs> well, but uh, uh, earmarks are problematic, but also uh, serve a purpose. Oh, no. In the Placid Universe, <laughs> they are only good. The uh, If only I got earmarked something myself. The- oh, really? That's the whole thing here. We need the David Plotz honorary bridge. <laughs> oh, I would love a bridge. I would definitely love a bridge. <laughs> I feel like a bridge is what you would want. Yeah. I don't know if everyone would want a bridge. I want, I would, or I'd want a forest. I'd like a national forest. Oh, yes. That is a more romantic image, perhaps. <laughs> uh, so to, to close this out here, Paul, this question of trust and restoring trust and how, do, how does the left find a way to make Americans believe in government again is so important. And I, and I know that you're writing a historical book, not a policy book. But when you look either at state government or at the U.S. government or at governments in other countries, can you cite examples of ways that they have gone about restoring this trust that you think might be a model for what liberals should pursue here? That's a, that's a great question. Um, well, I think there are two things. One is recognizing that uh, compromised policies can still be very effective. Uh, so even though, I don't know, the Affordable Care Act is uh, is not a perfect bill, uh, it has provided health care to millions uh, and uh, can gain trust. Um, I think things like uh, the you know more minor things like 
I don't know, everyone loves to talk about the DMV as the worst uh, agency, you know, in the world, but trying to find ways to, uh, this is just very, again, sort of minor, but the, the efforts at local government to, you know, 311, uh, you know, call and you have one way to get to the government and they'll, they'll answer your problems or finding a way to actually just make an appointment at a government agency so you know and you don't have to go there and wait for, you know, five hours to get your uh, thing. Um, I, th- I think that's kind of continuous improvement of trying to figure out how do you make the systems uh, work better is one way. Uh, and then I think also coming to terms with flawed policies, maybe the best we're going to get, uh, and, and being able to accept uh, those flaws while accomplishing ends is, is another important uh, aspect of it. Paul Sabin has written Public Citizens. Check it out, Paul. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You get zero ads on any Slate podcast. You even get full bonus episodes of some Slate shows. And you also get to support the journalism that Slate does. And you can do that for just $1 for the first month of membership. So to sign up, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. And today, our topic for Slate plus, our extra segment, is going to be how to write a book We will talk to Josie about how she's writing her book, and then we'll talk about our own methods for writing a book. So if you are interested in writing a book and are confounded by the difficulty, how to get started, how to do it, how to follow through, how to keep at it, we are going to have all your answers. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus today. Emily, what worries you most about the Delta variant kids in schools as we start the school year? Oh, man. So here's what I think about this. To me, it just seems imperative based on the research for kids to go back to in-person school as many kids as is safely possible. There are immunocompromised kids who are going to still need remote learning. I recognize that. But I think for everybody else, in-person school five days a week is just essential And the Delta variant complicates it because it is now COVID is more contagious and um, and that, you know, puts some kids at risk and it also makes them potential source of spread in a way that is probably a bigger threat than it was before. I think it's crucial to think about the role that vaccines play in mitigating spread the vaccines mostly of adults and older kids, right? Or actually, I should say entirely, because the younger kids can't get the vaccines yet. And so I think it is so important for us to recognize that kids have sacrificed tremendously because of COVID. You look at the research, especially poor kids and Black and Latino kids have really suffered academically. And there are a lot of also distressing findings about the mental health of kids and how much that's been affected. And so the adults who work in the schools and also adults in communities, because that's what affects community spread, need to pull together for kids so that they can go back to school as much as possible and as safely as possible. Josie, you have kids who I believe are pre-vaccine age and preschool age, right? Yeah, they're in daycare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so how is a how is a parent who's dealing with children who cannot get vaccinated, but who do need to be out in the world and in in this public experience or in this communal experience. Yeah. Uh, how does the the Delta surge affect you? You know, a lot of the discussion around Delta and really around COVID at all is kids don't die. Most kids don't die, which is true. Most kids don't die. Um, I try to remind people that the 
you know, the sacrifice and the um, impact that the vaccine has on kids and families is not just death or no death, right? So my kids um, started school on August 2nd. On August 3rd, uh, we got an email saying that there had been a COVID exposure from a teacher who went to every class. So the entire school shut down for 10 days. No um, way. Yeah, yeah. Oh um, yes. Uh, and, and was it know, a vaccinated teacher? You don't need to say. Not a vaccinated teacher. Oh, um, good. And, oh and so good what we, God. you know, what we, and, and look like my kid's school is also in this very difficult position because hiring is almost impossible right now for daycares, right? Um, there is sort of no more real help from the government to, to stay alive. The school has lost a ton of staff in the past year and a half since it's had, since it was closed, um, or since it was like sparsely populated. Uh, and so they're really trying to, um, make do with too few staff, too little teachers, too little infrastructure. So the school shut down for 10 days. And look, my kid, I mean, I have a pandemic baby who was born in September, um, and then a three-year-old and my three-year-old has, long issues, long health issues that he's had since he was a baby. So that part worries me. But honestly, the social part worries me a lot. And it's really sad for him that he went into school for the first time in a really long time. He was so excited. And then two days later, he's back at home with his parents who he already doesn't think we're cool. He's three and he's already realized we're not we're not cool enough to hang out with him. So, um, so you know, the impact is massive. And it really just lays bare the failures of of kind of our system to do things like ensure childhood safety, to do things like ensure childhood education at all, right? To pay teachers enough to really be risking their health. I mean, it's it's just so frustrating. This entire thing is extremely frustrating. I'm uh, maddened by the vaccine situation for younger kids <sighs> in particular. Uh, I'm maddened by the fact that the 12 to 17 year olds are not getting vaccinated at the rates that I wish they would, but that's that's one issue. But that the five to 11 year olds, that there's been significant trials, uh, months of results, and the FDA has not sped up the approval. And I was really glad to see the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is headed by a friend of mine, Lee Beers, wrote a letter to the FDA saying, hurry the hell up. These are mm -hmm. pediatricians, hundreds, you know, represent the major organization of pediatricians in this country. And they're saying, look, you don't have to wait to study the six-month reactions to these vaccines. There, the, there are very few reactions after two months in vaccines. So basically, it's not that is not a thing. So just get these vaccines out because if you don't, you have kids who are getting sick, dying, transmitting the disease to other people who are going to get sick and die. And it's it's infuriating, Emily. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't understand the. Um the way in which the FDA has not acted with total urgency. I mean, we've talked about this before in terms of the um, timing of final approval of the vaccines for adults um, and 12 to 17 year olds. But I just continue to find this mystifying as like a cost benefit analysis. Um, I just don't I just don't get it. I will say one of the more promising developments this week was that Randy Weingarten, who's the head of one of the biggest teachers unions in the country, said that they the union is no longer opposing vaccine mandates. That doesn't mean all the local unions will drop their opposition to vaccine mandates for school employees. But at least um, Weingarten is willing to move on this. I mean, I wish she had said that 
far earlier. I just think it's really important to remember that the vaccines are our best tool here. We're going to have a huge fight. We're having a huge fight over mask mandates in schools. Um, And, you know, I support mask mandates for students right now, given how contagious the Delta variant is. But we don't have randomized controlled trials that really show that the um, masks for kids made a huge difference in terms of preventing infection last year. Given how contagious Delta is, like I again, I support them right now because I can see the argument and um, and I think it is totally worth it to have mass in order for the kids to go back to school. And I hope it helps address parents fears. Um, But it's really the vaccines that we that are going to get us out of this. You know, it's funny. I. I guess I owe it to, to myself to be to go where the science is. I if there's not significant evidence that masks are reducing transmission in schools, then I really feel like that's a fight that is just not worth having and not great to have. And and we shouldn't do it. And also, we know that kids wearing masks has a maleficent effect on them, too, which is like when you don't look at people, when you don't see them, it's bad when you can't kind of interact. And so. And so, yeah, especially I would for younger it. kids. Yeah, like speech. speech yeah, I was. I had yeah. a whole interaction with someone yesterday, and it was. It took. It was like. It was like we had a. We had to have a translator because everything she said, I had to be like, "What?" And then she had to say it really loud, and then everything I said, she had to be like, "What?" And it took twice as long. But anyway, that's neither here nor there, um, because we were talking through mass. But I, I guess I. I don't. I can't get too much energy worked up about having mass mandates, and it also is politically polarizing. But the vaccine situation is is just infuriating. It's like this. It's infuriating. Yeah. I have to say one thing that I feel I'm happy about mass. So at my kid's school, the three-year-old wears mass, the baby obviously can't, but um, honestly, it saves me an enormous amount of worry during the day because especially at that age, they're touching each other all the time. They're so, there's no kind of control. Um, and I spend so much time worried about him getting sick right. generally, right? right? Pre COVID, I worried about my kid getting sick all the time. So the fact that he's wearing a mask um, is a little relieving. Um, but, you know, he plays soccer, can't wear it at soccer. He doesn't wear it, you know, like it's not as if I don't know how much it's actually doing except for my general mental daily stability. But I'll also say, like, to the point about kids getting vaccinated, I'm so frustrated that we even have to that kids are even in this position where, you know, parents are really worried about their five-year-old getting vaccinated because adults won't do it. I mean, this was avoidable. And it really does feel like we are asking, we're forced to ask, right, these young kids to get vaccinated because we can't trust adults to actually do what they need to do, you know, to do what's best for their fellow citizens. And it, to me, is just so, I mean, so, so much injustice of who's actually carrying the weight of what we have to do as a society to to ensure that, like, another 500,000 people don't die. Yeah, to um to shine a ray of hope here. And I think John mentioned this last week. You know, when you look at the numbers from the United Kingdom with Delta, they rose, you know, in this incredibly scary spike. And then they started to fall rapidly, even though the UK was not imposing um, mandated mitigation measures. And when you look at 
England, which lifted everything in July, versus Scotland, which kept them, you don't see a difference in those curves. And so maybe Delta is going to kind of burn through our country and then fall. Um, I think some public health folks are predicting that. Uh, And, you know, herd immunity gets built through natural immunity as well as the vaccines. And so while I would certainly prefer to have fewer people get sick and die over, you know, the way that we're um, being affected right now, like, I wonder if this is what feels so alarming right now could turn out to be relatively short term and then we could come up with a different approach for school, you know, once the numbers start to fall. I'm, I'm worried about these mitigation measures like masks getting super calcified and entrenched um, beyond necessarily the numbers being high for the reasons that David was saying, like masks um, impose a real cost on kids. I wonder if you do you guys think just as a exit question here, when we get out of the pandemic, there are lots of vaccination requirements. Most in fact, maybe as far as I know, every state has vaccination requirements for kids in schools. And there are always a few kids who are allowed to get out of it for whatever reason. But, you know, you're required to get an MMR vac- vaccine. You're required to get maybe tetanus and maybe the hepatitis ones. Are we going to see a massive rebellion against kids getting those vaccines, which we know have been incredibly beneficial to society as a whole, as well as to individual children? I think the answer is no. I think a lot of what's going on right now is the newness of the vaccines and the way this particular one has been polarized. And I think over time, this is going to just ebb. Um, And I think one of the really hard parts about vaccine mandates right now is that if they're going to be imposed, they're going to be imposed mostly on adults. Like we're used to exactly what you just said, David, which is the vaccine mandates come in for children through school. And that's a social norm. We don't usually ask adults to get vaccinated. And I think there's a that flip has um, affected the the polarization that we're seeing. So, yeah, in the longer term, I feel hopeful about the vaccination mandates in schools, but we're just not there yet. And the other thing that we're starting to have to face up to is that, you know, COVID, some form of COVID may wind up being endemic, which means it's just going to be with us. And then the best hope is that it turns into like a bad cold or the flu and we get boosters every year. And it's not something that's like killing a lot of people or making people really super sick. Um, but the the path from here to there is is just not clear. And it seems right now like there just is a, are a lot of obstacles. I think probably the best way to make sure people get the vaccine is to tell them they can't, <laughs> um, you know, just like make it seem like something only only the government gets to have and then hope that like reverse psychology works on people. Because I feel actually a lot less positive. Um, I live in Georgia, so I am certainly in the midst of like vaccine denial world. But in a way, I really do worry about what has been thought of as sort of like a fringe anti-science movement that like wasn't even across the political spectrum. People were okay getting their kids vaccinated as a general rule. I am worried about like what happens after this because so much misinformation is spreading. I was just seeing the other day on Instagram, a friend of a friend who is a nurse and she's protesting outside the hospital because they're saying she has to get vaccinated and she doesn't think that's fair. And you just wonder, yeah, it's very, it's dark, right? It's very, um, it's very depressing and concerning to see so much rejection 
even from medical professionals, right, of the need to get vaccinated against something that has literally killed, I mean, almost, you know, over half a million Americans alone. Um, and yet there's still so much pushback. So I, I'm, I'm worried about what is coming down the hatch on this. Yeah, I mean, it's so our inability to act for the collective good is so high these days, our, our failure or incapacity to see. I mean, the, the, I'm sure the nurse is saying, oh, well, I, you know, I'm willing to endure that risk for myself. And it's like, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you, nurse. It has to do with all the people you're going to interact with who are vulnerable. I mean, what she actually, what she said was like, she was, they were treated so badly during COVID. They had no PPE. They had no protection. They were asked to do so much. They, which is totally true. I don't understand why the response to that is we should be able to put you know, sick people at risk versus we deserve better worker protection. We deserve, um, you know, better pay. We deserve better hours. I mean, um, it just feels so misguided to me. And in some ways, I think it is an attempt to exercise control in a world that they, that people feel like is unpredictable and that they don't have a lot of control over. Right. Um, but honestly, seeing nurses protest outside hospitals made me a lot more pessimistic. Can I ask you all a question about the sort of global moral quandary we're in? So, you know, I totally understand why parents of younger kids are begging for a faster approval of a vaccine in the United States. It doesn't seem like we can get to herd immunity without those kids, especially with a more contagious variant. At the same time, we have these horribly low rates of vaccine access in much of the world. And, you know, we were supposed to have a plan that ensured that vulnerable people globally, older people, um, people with uh, other risk factors got access before the lower risk people who were the younger people. I mean, have we just like abandoned that out of pure selfishness in the United States? Is the contagiousness of the Delta variant a legitimate reason? What like how are we supposed to think about this? I mean, I was actually thinking about that right before you said it, Emily, that I've been talking about the U.S. so much as we've been talking about this and that like what this actually is, is so much more dire for people in other countries and they don't have access to what we have access to, which, by the way, makes the vaccine, those who are refusing to get the vaccine a little bit more frustrating because you see in other countries, people waiting 10, 12 hours in line for the hopes of getting a vaccine. And here we're just rejecting it. But it is true that what we're seeing in places with less vaccine access is, you know, makes what's happening here look like a cakewalk. It's it's devastating. Let us go more cheerily to cocktail chatter when you are sitting in the swelter of New Haven, Emily Bazelon, with a extremely cold drink next to you, a cold alcoholic drink. What will you be chattering about to Paul Sabin? I am imagining that margarita over the weekend. Um, I can never resist an opportunity to talk about the census. And this week, the Census Bureau is dropping the, all the data for redistricting across the country. So this is the data that will enable states to reallocate legislative seats within states. We already did apportionment. Now we're on to the inside states. How does power shift? And we're going to just have this mad dash of map drawing 
uh, because a lot of states have these really fast approaching deadlines for um, redistricting to take place like in the fall. And it's just going to be really interesting to see, you know, how this data affects the power balance within states, um, what happens to opportunity districts for black and Latino voters that are acquired by the Voting Rights Act. Um, There's just like lots of political power to be reallocated with huge consequences. And some of the states that are going to expect it to move really quickly, according to Politico, are Colorado, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Iowa, other states with early deadlines, Oregon, North Carolina, California, Virginia. Those are some really important states for both the balance of power in the House and states, some of them with um, their own state houses in play. So anyway, I will be watching all of this very closely because I am obsessed with the census. JDR, Josie Duffy Rice, what's your chatter? So um, Clint Smith, who uh, co-hosted Justice in America with me um, for our first two seasons, and it's just one of the kindest people on earth. But that is not why I'm recommending his book, because his book is legitimately great. Um, it is called How the Word is Passed. And it is kind of a survey of American history through uh, visits to different um, historical sites. So he goes to eight different sites, including Angola Prison in Louisiana. He goes to Monticello. And he kind of analyzes and assesses the the role of slavery in American history, the way that we grapple with it or don't grapple with it. And it's really just beautifully written as well. I mean, it's, it almost reads like fiction. It's so, uh, it's so beautiful. Um, so I highly recommend Clint's book. And then one other book that I just want to, anybody who has middle school kids will really enjoy this book called Maya and the Robot, which is this amazing book by Eve L. Ewing, who is just an incredible scholar in all sorts of ways, but wrote this amazing YA book for kids, um, I guess it's not YA. Maybe it's like first, second to fourth grade or something around that that age. But um, it's really, really good. And so uh, I highly recommend that one as well. I just want to second your recommendation, especially for Clint's book. And also to say, a few weeks ago, you were on the show and you talked about Detransition Baby, yes. which is a novel that I was in the middle of when I was listening to you talk about it. Oh, my gosh. We have yes, to talk about it. we had a total it. mind I'm, I'm going to text you. It's amazing. I got a lot out of that book. Yes. It's so good. Uh, my chatter is about maybe the best story I have read in a long time. It's Jen Senior's story in The Atlantic, What Bobby McElvain Left Behind, Grief, Conspiracy Theories, and One Family Search for Meaning in the Two Decades Since 9-11. And it's about a family. And this family lost a son in 9-11, Bobby McElvain. And his father and mother survived. His brother survived. His girlfriend survived. And Jen Senior, who was very close to Bobby McElvain's family, goes back and spends time with him 20 years later and tries to understand what his loss meant and how how that's shaped how they've moved through the world since then. And it's I, I don't want to spoil it by getting into any of the details. It's just a beautiful, heart-wrenching story about loss and, and about surviving loss. Uh, so check it out. Listeners, 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 listeners. You send us your cocktail chatters, and it's great. Please keep them coming to us. Please send them to us at @slategabfest on Twitter, because they are so good. And the one this week bewitched me. It comes from Matt Gaussman, and let's hear from Matt Gaussman about his listener chatter this week. Hello, Slate Political Gabfest. 
This is Matt Gaussman from beautiful Oakland, California. I was riveted this week by a YouTube two-hour-long, two-part video of Tim Dodd from Everyday Astronaut getting a tour of the SpaceX facility by Elon Musk himself. The two of them basically nerd out and discuss rockets and space travel for two hours. It was honestly more fascinating than any documentary I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of them. And it's made me rethink the limitations of mainstream media and how gems like this rarely get to see the light of day. I hope anyone who's interested checks it out. Thanks, guys. Onward and upward. Woohoo! <laughs> it is great. It is. It, I, I, Elon Musk is so impressive, honestly. Like I, you can say what you will about the guy. There's all sorts of complexity there, but listening to him talk about rockets and payloads and the engineering of it, totally, totally fascinating. Uh, so. I, I also concur with Matt on that. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced this week by Jess Miller, who sat in for Shana Roth, who sat in for Jocelyn Frank. We had a Jess, thank you so much for stepping in at the last minute to, to fill a void. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. She was helped this week by Grace Woodruff. Thank you also, Grace and Bridget. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and Josie Duffy Rice and Paul Saban, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We have talked. I feel like we've had a version of this conversation before. We've talked to Josie about the fact that she was writing a book uh, and how it's going. Emily wrote a book recently. I've written books, not so recently, but in the past. And I know that a lot of people who listen to the GabFest are people who certainly read a lot of books, but a lot of you are people who want to write books or are interested in maybe one day writing a book or have, or are writing books. And it's a hard thing to do. It is, it is tricky to do and there are different ways to approach it. And so we thought we'd do a GabFest, uh, a slate plus segment here um, about how to write a book and what our process is, and what works and what doesn't for us. So, uh, Josie, you're mid-stream. Maybe you want to listen, but you're really at the beginning. Tell us where you're at. My proposal is done. It is not, my book is not sold yet. So I'm in kind of that process. And I have really, like, I spend so much time researching. My book topic is kind of big. I mean, it's like about justice and mercy. So I spend half, I say I spend half my time researching and then I spend the other half panicked that someone else has already written this book and nobody's going to care about it. So it's not I, like, I will take all the book writing advice you all have because whatever I'm doing is not super effective. Also do not recommend trying it with two toddlers in the house. They've not proven to be like very conducive to me getting anything done. They're not allies. Yeah, that's a total challenge. You know what? Let's actually start with one basic point, which is how do you get started if you're going to have a book? How do you get paid to write a book? So lots of people write books. They're not getting paid for it. But if you try and get paid, that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today.